Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles this morning, once again to the first chapter of the Apostle Paul's letter written to the Galatians, where we are going to look together this morning at verses 9, I'm sorry, verses 6 through 9. That's Galatians 1, 6 through 9. You can find that passage on page 1141 in your pew Bibles. This week on Reformation Sunday, we are indeed remembering the spark that ignited the Protestant Reformation 505 years ago as Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church. We are continuing our look together in doing so at the great importance that we have in getting the gospel right and that we find here in the Apostle Paul's letter written to the Galatians. And as I mentioned to you last week, we find the Apostle Paul here engaged in fighting a fight of such magnitude, such great consequence, such enormity, that he fights as one who has absolutely everything at stake. He fights as one who knows that indeed lives are on the line. And why is it that Paul approaches this theological argument in this way? What truth is being so compromised among this church in Galatia that Paul so clearly has love in his heart for? What is it that has the apostle amazed and so upset? Well, beloved in Christ, it is the very truth of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only comfort for fallen man in life or in death. It is the very message of hope itself. The good news of the gospel itself has come under a direct attack by these so-called leaders, these respected men of the church, these false apostles who have sort of swept in after Paul and led the people to embrace something that sounded real close to what Paul had taught them, yet in reality was night and day different from the message that they had only recently accepted with gladness and joy from the Apostle Paul. And Paul certainly knows what's at stake in this fight. He knows that this fight is not one that can just be put off for another day. It's not one that is perhaps better left simply set aside, left for another with perhaps more energy to fight. No. Paul knows with certainty that he must go after these false teachings, these false teachers with everything that he has, and he must put an end to their perverting of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Beloved, I'm guessing that even as we, we hear that, it seems strange to our modern way of thinking. Doesn't it? That even as we see Paul here begin to go after these guys with angry vehemence that is rarely witnessed 
in our civilized church, we find ourselves wondering if Paul is not overreacting a bit. I mean, why get so upset over a theological issue of all things? I mean, doesn't that sort of defeat the whole purpose here, Paul? Why all of this anger? Why these accusations? Why even the pronouncements of curses? Why the haste? Why such strong words? Beloved, I say that it surprises us, though I do not think even for a second that it surprises us because we have become more civilized in any kind of fruitful way. That we have somehow risen above this kind of thing. The sad truth is we have become inoculated to this kind of thing. Our indifference is not a sign of growth, but really more of an indictment over the importance of the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you ever considered, I mean really considered, what is going on here that has Paul so set to put an end to it immediately? These wicked men, these false teachers, these wolves in sheep's clothing were adding to the finished work of the Savior. They were promoting and attempting to pass off a gospel that really was the absolute antithesis of the gospel. When Jesus breathed his last upon the cross, he said the words, It is finished. The work of redemption was complete. The price was paid in full and it needed the help of no man to be any more finished or any more complete. It was not now up to man to sort of legitimize it all. The work of the gospel is not some type of relay race in life. Jesus did not start the race, gain the lead, and then pass the baton to you, where he's now sort of anxiously waiting to see if you will have the strength and the intestinal fortitude to finish the race. Jesus came, he lived a blameless life, and he graciously paid the full, complete price for those who had been given to him by the Father. Blameless in the eyes of the law so that we who are not without offense, we who are guilty in the eyes of the law might be free from the tyranny of the law and sin and might live our lives in the here and now in eternal gratitude to God for that work. As I already mentioned, today we're celebrating 505 years of Reformation history. And Martin Luther said something about this gospel. He said that this message of the gospel and specifically this area of our justification before a holy and perfect God is the message upon which the church of Jesus Christ either stands or falls. so we have to get this right. There's no room here for compromise. 
It's not an area that we should ever be comfortable to know two or three different ways of looking at it. All of which in our eyes may hold some validity. We live in a day when tolerance seems to be the thing that we are all led to believe must exist amongst the people of God or, or, or must indeed be in place amongst the people of God. Unity in all things. If we can just agree that we love Jesus, then we will realize that all of the disagreement in the church is inconsequential. That we would be much better off if we could just accept our differences as simply innocent. Different ways of seeing things and love one another. And while I would say there are probably things that are unclear enough that we should find some unity with other believers, I want to be clear with you this morning when it comes to this message of the gospel, we have no choice but to fight for its clarity its purity, and to protect its radical message of the wonderful grace of Almighty God to sinners like you and me. We must. There's no room for the tolerance of other ways of seeing what the gospel is. Hope itself is at stake. This is everything. And beloved, we should approach it as such. The Apostle Paul certainly did, and when it came to this issue, he was not afraid to incite the enemies of the Word of God to such wrath that his very life was desired by those whom he opposed. And though Paul does a magnificent job rebuking these teachers and gently leading his flock back to a a correct understanding of the gospel, we know that this letter did not once and for all end the attack that the enemies of God have launched against this message of hope. The church has continually found in her midst those who deny that the grace of our God, given through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, is alone sufficient to gain one acceptance in the eyes of God and merit one eternal life with him in glory forever. I want to tell you, this is not an evangelical problem. This is not an out there problem. This problem exists even in our ranks. It crosses all denominational lines. No one is safe. No single group is exempt from this attack. And we, like Paul, must approach this fight like everything is on the line. We must never allow the enemies of God to creep into the church and preach another gospel altogether from the one given to us in the pages of sacred scripture. Beloved, we know what that is, right? We know the gospel. That we, at our very best, are wicked. Apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Our sin is an absolute offense to a holy God. And even though we are like this, God in his incomprehensible mercy sent his son to come to live blamelessly under the law, to go to the cross, bearing upon his shoulders our sin, paying the price for our sin once and for all,
with his very life. And he did it. Not because of what we have done to deserve his forgiveness in our lives. Not because he somehow looked ahead and saw that all of us would be paragons of faithfulness. He did it because of his great love for us. Despite what we truly are. God gave to us his mercy instead of his judgment and wrath. We must never take for granted what is at stake when those who hate the truth of the word of God and who hate the truth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ rise up in our midst. We must protect the gospel. We must protect the truth of the gospel at all cost. And that being said, beloved, let's look to the word of God this morning. I'd like you to follow along again as I read uh, Galatians chapter 1, picking up with verse 6 and reading through verse 9 this morning. And this is Paul speaking. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received. Let him be accursed. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful this morning for the opportunity and the privilege that we have in coming before your word. We pray, Father, that you would clear our minds and our hearts this morning of the many many things of this life that distract us, that we would be able to give our full undivided attention to your word so that hearing your word through the power of your spirit, we might be transformed by that word for your glory. And Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the fact that as we read this letter, that though Paul's aggravation is certainly apparent with what's going on with this church in Galatia among these people. That his love for them as the people of God entrusted to his care is so apparent. He loves them like a father loves his children. You can see very clearly the venom that Paul has for these false teachers in almost every sentence of this letter. And though he is most certainly frustrated, and rightly so, his comments directed at the people themselves are seasoned with love. And we need to see it. He says in verse 6, I marvel, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who has called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Some have looked at this verse as 
manifesting some of Paul's venom, if you will, against those to whom this letter is written, the Galatians themselves. But I think it's far more love here than venom. Paul says that he marvels, that is, he is completely astonished. He is taken back. He is amazed that they have already laid aside the comforting message of hope, the freedom of their lives from the bondage of sin and death, and that they had received the the freedom that they had received concerning the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul had come and he had told the Galatians that Jesus had indeed come, that God had come down, he had become incarnate, and he had walked among them. He had told them that Jesus Christ had taken upon himself all of their sin, past, present, and future, and he paid the full penalty for their sins once and for all at the cross. That though they were certainly guilty before the holy law of God, that Jesus Christ had been blameless in the eyes of that law. That as a result, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was perfectly fitted for their salvation. He was the desperately needed substitute to stand in for a sin-stained people. He had become the perfect, necessary sacrifice offered once and for all of their sin. And that by placing their faith alone, which is the gift of God, in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, solely because of the grace of Almighty God alone, they were actually now able to have peace with God in and through him. Not because of what they had done right and wrong, but because of Jesus Christ. Through his blood, they have been reconciled to the Father and they now have peace with God. And they can live knowing, trusting that though they deserve nothing less than the wrath of God, they get his grace. And they can eagerly look forward to spending eternity with him in the glory of heaven where they will worship him at the foot of his majestic throne where they will see him face to face. And they will praise him and worship him. And the Galatians heard this message and they received it with joy and they ran to the arms of Jesus. They had embraced the wonderful good news of the gospel and they rejoiced to know that though they were flawed, though they were sinners, though their battle with sin seemed to be hopeless, they could have peace with God in and through Jesus Christ. That though the law tormented them, as it continually pointed to their failures, though their sin was illuminated constantly to their seared consciences, Despite that, God in his mercy allowed for them to be entirely forgiven and have perfect peace in and through Jesus Christ. And now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, driving them in faith to place their trust in Jesus Christ and in his work alone, Paul had told them, now you are free. 
We talk all the time about that freedom. They're free to now love the law for the first time. Free to now be under no condemnation in Jesus Christ. No longer were they in bondage to sin and death. They were free men and women in Jesus Christ. They were united by faith to his life, his death, his resurrection. They were clothed in his perfection. They were justified in Jesus Christ before the judge of the earth. And so they were free. And Paul marvels that after having received such great news as that, that they would possibly now want to entertain any lesser message than that one. That they would allow for anyone to damage the precious freedom that they had been given in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I say that this just drips with fatherly love and does not seem to me to be venom against these people whom he loves. And I hope that as we look at this and we consider it, you'll see the difference here. You know, I can remember as a teenager doing plenty of things that raised the ire of my father. Too many to recount. I won't even try. Sometimes the things that I did were foolish on a whole new level. And they were the direct result of my disregard for thinking things through or perhaps ever thinking at all. And I'm positive that in those years of my life, I routinely disappointed my father with my foolishness. I'm sure of it. I've told you stories. And I'm sure parents that are here this morning have lived through the drama of your own children's foolishness. I'm not the only fool here. I know that. I'm not alone. I'm not the only one who lived under the influence of sinful and at times ignorant flesh. You know, there were times when my dad's patience was tested to the limit. But there were other times that though what I had done had certainly made my father angry, he lovingly corrected me because he was dealing with much more than simply driving foolishness out of his son. And his anger was directed as much at the people who had led me to believe that things he told me were harmful for me were in fact not. And he lovingly sat me down and he told me the truth, like one who was concerned about my life going in the wrong direction, not because he was mad at me, but because he loved me. And beloved, Do you see the difference? This is Paul's approach here as a spiritual father to the church in Galatia. He loves these people like they are his own children. And though his indignation towards any who would dare to squelch the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, though it's certainly aroused, he gently tells them that they have been led to believe something that will not only infringe upon their beloved newfound freedom, but something that ultimately could lead them into the arms of death, despair, and hopelessness itself. He tells them they have been led to believe a different gospel. We need to hear him here. Not one that is an extension or a slightly better version 
of what had already been taught them, but something altogether different. Paul calls it a different gospel. In fact, he says in verse 7, which is not a gospel. It's not a gospel at all. He says there are some who trouble you and who want to pervert the gospel of Christ, the only gospel. The Greek word for gospel we've talked about before, it's euangelion. It literally means the good message or the good news. The message that Paul had delivered to them was not simply good news, it was the good news. It was the greatest news. The false teachers had added to the gospel and they had convinced the Galatians that there was more to it than simply placing their faith in Jesus Christ alone because of the grace of Almighty God alone. Those things were true, according to the false teachers, but like all self-righteousness, there was indeed, there had to be just a little bit more. Just one or two other things. They needed to do something else in order to really have peace. They needed to keep the law, and specifically in this case, they needed to keep the law by being circumcised. They had to do something. Their salvation, their forgiveness of sins, their peace depended on something that God needed them to do for him. It was a synergistic cooperation, if you will, between them and God that would lead them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it sounds familiar to us, I'm sure. That it is God doing his part And man doing his part that will ultimately lead to a complete salvation. Beloved, the evangelical church is full of this kind of teaching. We've all heard the gospel pitch, right? The gospel campaigns. That we are out to sea. That we are drowning, that our our noses are only just above the waterline and we look up through the blurry water and we see Jesus standing on the deck of a rescue ship and he's thrown the life ring and all we need to do now is grab it and he will pull us to safety in life. Jesus has done his part. Will you be a good guy, a good lady and do your part in grabbing on to that life preserver? Jesus has done his end in throwing out the ring. We must do ours by reaching out in whatever strength we can muster and just grab onto it. Maybe you've heard it this way, that we are on our deathbeds. And that as we feebly struggle to suck in our last breath, Jesus Christ comes, he sits at our bedside, he approaches us in our weakness, and he holds out the serum, the medicine. To our, to our lips. And all we have to do is take it in and swallow it and we will live. <clears throat> Maybe even this morning you're saying, oh, what's wrong with those? <laughs> right? Isn't that what happens? 
Beloved in Christ, the problem is we are not drowning. And we are not dying. We are floating face down in the ocean. And we are on, in our casket. Not on our deathbed. The word of God says that we are dead in trespasses and sins. The news regarding man is all bad and we desperately need a gospel. We cannot be saved by life preservers in the latest, greatest medicine unless God himself comes down and breathes the life-giving Holy Spirit into our lives, allowing for us to have eyes that see and ears to hear the truth of the gospel, allowing for us to willingly embrace it by faith through grace. There is no hope for us. There's no hope in those other scenarios because it relies on you, a sinful human being, to make a move towards God. And you will never do it. Not drowning, but dead. Not dying, dead. Do you understand why Paul would marvel at the embracing of such things? In light of what they know, do you understand what he knows is at stake for the people of God here and why it is that he must stand and fight again? Do you think that maybe you and I should be fighting as well for this truth? Instead of all the other things we like to fight about? Is there any more fight more important than this one? The truth is we ought to be marveling at what we see passing for the gospel of Jesus Christ in our own day and age because it's no gospel at all. It offers no comfort in life and in death. It's one that sells you on the wicked notion that you can get better in Adam and that you have no need of new resurrected life in Jesus Christ. Paul understands the stakes, and so he says in verse 8, and I want you to hear him, beloved, he says, listen, this is how strongly Paul feels about it. He says, even if we ourselves came to you, and he says, scratch that, even if an angel from heaven were to come in glorious, radiant light, and preach to you another gospel than what we have preached to you, let them be accursed. Could language possibly get any stronger than that? About how Paul feels about the central importance of the gospel of Jesus Christ and are getting it right? He says, even an angel in heaven, let him be accursed if he preaches anything other than the grace of Almighty God saving you in the person and work of Jesus Christ entirely. If I or any of the men with me tell you something different, let them be accursed. God forbid that anyone would ever dare to pervert the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's giving us a warning. We are to flee from this kind of teaching. Let the one who teaches these things be cursed. Let God 
Curse them for their wickedness, for their recklessness with the truth. Let him curse them for ever daring to add what is perfect, add to what is perfect by God's design. Beloved, does this seem like foreign teaching to anyone else in this day of blanket tolerance in the church of Jesus Christ? We just want to be heard and we want to hear and we shouldn't think that we would ever be so bold as to claim any corner on the truth. I want to tell you, beloved, that is arrogance, not piety. We should never let it be found among the people of God. Is this your way of looking at things this morning, that we should just accept and respect one another, we should all try to get along, that there's never a place in the church where we draw our proverbial line in the sand? That there's never a reason to stand up and say, this far and no farther. If this is what you think, then I implore you to listen to the way in which Paul goes after those who would dare to change the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And just in case you miss it, he says says it again, only this time Paul broadens his scope to include anyone and everyone who would dare to do this kind of thing. He says in verse 9, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel than what you have received, let him be accursed. He says it twice. There's no room for error when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the foundation of everything that we embrace when we take on the name Christian. Paul thought as if the very lives of these people were at stake, and in fact, we know that they were. You know, we live in a day when getting the gospel right is secondary to having a gospel at all. As long as we believe in God, he'll reward that belief. That's what we tell one another. The church has fallen away in great numbers from the teaching of the Apostle Paul that in this fight, everything hangs in the balance. And so we must get it right. When we do, it truly is good news to those who have so longed to hear it. It points them to the arms of a sovereign, providential God who loves us enough to save us despite what we actually are and what we actually deserve. The gospel is not good news to anyone that must rely upon themselves in order to save themselves. If you're honest with yourself at all, then you know that if your salvation is dependent upon your ability to do perfect good in your state of wickedness, apart from the influence of the Holy Spirit, apart from the perfection of Christ and the precious grace of God, then you are doomed to the fires of hell, according to the word of God. Beloved, we have to see it. We have to know it. Are you willing to say that there are some areas of this life that not only require us to fight, but in fact demand it? Are you willing to do it? I trust that if you are God's this morning, then you will. 
when it comes to getting the message of the gospel right, that you will not be tolerant of everyone's view on the gospel. I trust that there are areas such as this one where you are willing to draw your line in the sand and say this far, no farther. You will be willing to say that the ones who proclaim any other message should be cursed rather than be allowed to pervert the glorious message of hope that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that as we continue to look at this and we think, uh, think on this and we meditate on this this week, that this, this message, the, the pure, undefiled, radical grace of God, gospel message, will ring in our ears and that we would be a congregation that only does not tolerate lesser gospels, but we celebrate the gospel of Scripture. That it motivates us in this life. That we love one another not because we hate conflict. We love one another because the gospel saved wretches just like us. That we look at our fellow image bearers and we sympathize with sin and weakness knowing that it's right there in our own lives, knowing that all of us need the perfection of Jesus or there is no hope. Beloved, I pray that God would be glorified by our willingness to stand and fight as Paul fought, that he would be honored by our willingness to embrace even the hatred of those who would pervert the truth of this wonderful life-giving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ.